Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of Ode to the Code, our podcast on the Code of Civil Procedure. Now after a long hiatus, we're finally back and quite a few things have changed. For starters, we've shifted our base temporarily from Bangalore to the city of Joy. And secondly, we have a new special guest today, but more on that later. Now the area that we're discussing in this episode is um, quite a popular one. It's Order 7, Rule 11, which, as we all know, talks about the rejection of plaints. Now, the specific issue that we'll be dealing with is uh, quite an interesting question. It is whether and how a court is to restrict itself within the four corners of a plaint while rejecting it under this specific rule. And an associated question is if the plaint... If the plaintiff seeks to amend the plaint and introduce a new cause of action, how does that interface with the rejection of a plaint under Order 7, Rule 11? Now, the base for our discussion is a recent judgment rendered by the High Court at Calcutta on the 1st of this month, October 2019. And this is rendered by a division bench of Justice Vishwanath Shomadgar and Justice Moshumi Bhattacharya. And as it so happens, and in the interest of full disclosure, the special guest that we have with us today was interning with Justice Shomadar while this judgment was delivered. So I'm very pleased to introduce a very old friend of mine, Harsh Tiwari. Pleasure. So yeah, so as uh, Aditya has told you, we're going to discuss a case that uh, uh, a judgment rendered by the division bench of the High Court at Calcutta on October 1, 2019. The, que- uh, the case is called uh, Merlin Merlin versus Pawan Kumar Agarwal. And if I could briefly give uh, for everyone's, uh, to help everyone, the facts of this case. So what basically had happened in this case was that there was a memorandum of understanding for for the development of a premises between the parties in 2004. So the parties being Merlin and the Agarwals, or, or one of the parties, one of the Agarwals being Pawan Kumar Agarwal. And this memorandum of understanding was then could not be executed further the mou contemplated a development agreement later on but it could not be executed further and in december 2008 the security was returned which had been paid to under the mou Correct. now in 2014 a case was filed by merlin stating that the mou had been extended by subsequent negotiations after the said cancellation and return of security and that that Merlin was still in possession of the said premises under the MOU and what it and what this case and what and what the plaint here sought was for specific performance of the memorandum of understanding now in 2015 an application was filed by the Agarwals for rejection of the plaint under Order 7, Rule 11 for inter alia non-disclosure of a cause of action, number one, and number two, for the crossing of the limitation period for the execution, for the, for the specific performance of the MOU sought. And now I think at this juncture, it's uh, good if we just let our listeners know what exactly the provision says. So, Order 7, Rule 11, titled Rejection of Plaint, states something very simple. 
it says that the plaint shall be rejected in the following cases. A, as Harsh already mentioned, where it does not disclose a cause of action. And we'll skip two grounds and we'll move to ground D, where the suit appears from the statement in the plaint to be barred by any law. And any law, of course, has to be interpreted to include the law of limitation. Yeah. So again, there were the two grounds for rejection here were that one, a cause of action wasn't disclosed and that limitation had been crossed. Correct. Now what happened later was that Merlin filed an amendment application in 2016 saying that MO, that in pursuance of the MOU, a development agreement had been executed between the parties and that under that development agreement, and I repeat the development agreement, not the memorandum of understanding, Merlin was still in possession of certain go-downs and that this development agreement was sub valid and subsisting. And what they sought instead of seeking execution of the MOU as they did in their original plane, they sought execution of this development agreement. So essentially you have to understand that the amendment is nothing but an attempt on the side of the plaintiffs, which is Merlin, to in a way change the very cause of action that they brought before the court. So what Merlin is trying to do is they're trying to say that, all right, if the MOU is indeed barred by limitation and does not give us a right to sue, in other words, a cause of action, how about we hit you with the development agreement? Because the development agreement is still persisting. Therefore, the question of limitation does not arise. And since the development agreement is still persisting, it of course gives us a cause of action to sue. And brings us within the limitation period. Right. Now, a practical point to be noted here is, since this is land we are dealing with, this sort of litigation will prevent any other competitors of this said developer Merlin from being able to develop that land or being able to enter into development agreements with regard to that land. Because all of them are basically scared away by this litigation. Right. So, even if it, so t- it turns out that in the end, upon an examination of the facts, this development agreement does not exist. Yeah. The fact that it has been alleged to exist and the fact that a trial court may, because of that allegation, be forced to look into the facts and conduct a whole full-scale trial to ascertain whether that development agreement exists or not, prolongs the right. suffering of the right. owners and prevents competitors right. from taking the valuable land. Exactly. So mm-hmm. it's essentially using litigation as a business tool. <laughs> yeah. And the most interesting point is that this is noted in very, very beautiful words by the 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 learned single judge, the Honorable Mr. Justice Shonji Banerjee uh, in the case, who says that, you know, this is basically a turf war between developers. Right. Land sharks. Land sharks. With the family that owned this plot of land, the other ones being the foot soldiers. Right. And And that is very true. And in order to, you know, look at the substance of Justice Shonji Banerjee's judgment, he very clearly sees that this is an attempt to try and bring a totally new case right. through the back door. Yeah. And he rejects that plaint and he rejects the amendment application to the plaint. So he rejects, I, my, my apologies, he rejects the original plaint and therefore says that he, he essentially allows the application under Order 7. Yeah, allows the application of the Agarwals under Order 7, Rule 11. Yeah. Rejects the original plate and therefore the amendment application is rendered useless. Correct. Now then it comes up to appeal. Right. And now the decision of Justice Banerjee is the impute judgment. Yeah. In the, yeah. 
in the proceedings before the division bench. And the division bench then, again, post-arguments and post-perusal of all of the facts and the judgment of the learned single judge, the impute judgment of the single judge, decides that there are two issues. We'll be focusing only on one of them. So first, whether the learned single judge was right in applying the provisions contained under Order 7, Rule 11 of the court and deciding that the limitation period had expired without allowing the application for amendment of the plaint or making determination of facts in relation to the amendment amended plaint. Right. Second, whether the learned single judge was right in admitting the application for rejection of the plaint and in deciding that no cause of action was disclosed by the plaintiff in the present case. Again, as I said, we're focusing on the first. first yeah. And as I understand it, what the first, you know, what the framing of the first issue tells me and having worked on the case and and having assisted in drafting the judgment drafting the judgment and seeing that the issue is cast in this manner yeah what what i have come to understand is it's basically an interaction of a few principles right the first principle being that we know that you're not supposed to traverse outside the four corners of the plane correct when when you when you're trying to decide if limitation applies yeah for the purposes of deciding whether an application should uh, whether a plane should be rejected under order 7 rule right. 11 right that you have to do but as we will discuss a little bit later, there are certain judgments which tell us that as a necessary and logical extension of that rule, yeah. there are certain situations where you have to go into a determination of fact, verily because what is averred in the plaint is not enough in allowing you to decide the limitation. Absolutely. So, Harsh, what it seems to me is that we've identified two competing principles. Mm-hmm. And our aim should be to kind of reconcile these two principles and arrive at the one unified principle of how you should reject a plain under Order 7 Rule 11. So let me just lay down the, com- the competing principles for the benefit of our listeners. Mm-hmm. The first one that Harsh has already mentioned is that when you're deciding on the question of rejection of a plaint under uh, Order 7 Rule 11, you are not allowed as the judge to go beyond the four corners of the plaint. Now, what does that mean in practice? And why does this principle exist in the first place? So if you look at a Supreme Court decision in the case of Madhanuri Sri Ramachandra Murthy, they have given a very um, nice rationale for this rule. And the rationale is that the power that the court exercises under Order 7, Rule 11 is a drastic one because you are essentially rejecting the plaint, right? You are telling the plaintiff that you have no right to sue before this court. And because this power is such a drastic one and its exercise has such huge ramifications, as a court, you're supposed to limit yourself and strictly adhere to the conditions specified under Rule 11. One of which is that you don't go beyond the plaint because Order 7 Rule 11 talks only about the plaint. Which now means, in terms of a practical consequence, that the averments made in the written statement as well as the contentions of the defendant are rendered wholly immaterial in deciding the question of rejection under Order 7 Rule 11. So that's one principle, right? And it seems to me that this principle goes in the favor of the plaintiff more often than not. What I have said in my plaint is gospel, and you cannot go beyond that. And the defendant, even though he has made an application under Order 7 Rule 11, cannot now use his written statement to say that, okay, I am using this to bolster my application. That's the first principle. The second one, and that, again, the Supreme Court has reiterated time and again, is that when you are reading the plaint to decide on an Order 7 Rule 11 application, you don't do a formal reading of the plaint. You do a meaningful and substantive reading of the plaint in order to determine whether a cause of action is disclosed or not. 
But the problem is to reconcile these two is a little difficult because the Supreme Court, while talking about the second principle, has said that you need to read the plaint as a whole. At no point have they ever said that you can go beyond the words of the plaint or you can move outside the domain or the realm of the plaint in order to decide such an application. Now, this is something that we have to reconcile and we'll do that by moving back to the Calcutta High Court's decision. So over to you again. So Calcutta High Court's decision, and again, now that you mentioned the second principle, and the second principle, I think, is associated with what I was talking about after having mentioned the first principle that you also repeated, which was that sometimes a full, meaningful reading of the plaint may lead to such a con- may inexorably lead to a conclusion where you ha- where you where you have to s- ask yourself how can I decide and stay within the four corners of the plaint and not go into say a determination of fact when what is said in the plaint is not enough in telling me whether limitation applies or not. Right. And there are two cases which I think which exemplify what what. What that means. Right. Or how how that principle applies in real life. Huh. Yeah. So the first case I would speak of is the Natarajan case, right. which is again a Supreme Court case. So in this the cause of action arose in nineteen ninety four, when there was an alleged trespass to the plaintiff's property. While the suit therein was filed in two thousand one. The suit sought for the release of declaration of plaintiff's title to the suit property and consequential injunction restraining the defendants from interfering with plaintiff's possession. In the alternative, there was recovery of vacant possession was sought. The trial judge dismissed an application for rejecting the plaint on ground of limitation, while the High Court reversed the trial court's ruling by stating that the three-year limit had expired for the main relief sought, that is, declaration of title. The Supreme Court, while allowing the appeal, observed as follows in paragraph 19. I think this is where, you know, the meat yeah. of what I'm trying to say is. We have noticed here and, above, here and before that the defendant inter alia on the plea of the identification of the suit land vis-a-vis the deed of sale under which the plaintiff has claimed his title claimed possession. And this is critical. The defendant did not accept that the plaintiff was in possession. An issue in this behalf is therefore required to be framed and the said question is therefore required to be gone into. Limitation would not commence unless there has been a clear unequivocal threat to the right claimed by the plaintiff. In a situation of this nature, in our opinion, the application under Order 7 Rule 11D was not maintainable. In other words, what the Supreme Court here is saying is they didn't just claim declaration of, they didn't just want declaration of title. Yeah. They also, in the alternative, ask for recovery of possession. Correct. So, there is an investigation of fact that was necessary. Yeah. What was that investigation of fact? Whether this person's possession has been hurt in the first place. Whether it has been infringed upon in the first place. The court had to be sure of that to be able to decide yeah. if on a full reading of the plaint, yeah. limitation applied or not. Right. Which means that you now need to frame an issue on this question. Hmm. And you need to go into that. Right, right, right. And you need to look at the evidence. And this is again further explained by a case, an earlier case known as Popat and Kotecha, in short. So, in Popat and Kotecha, a development agreement 
again this is a calcutta high court case right. the development agreement stipulated and contemplated the execution of a lease deed by the respondent in favor of the appellant right now the develop building con- that wa- that had to be built under the development agreement was completed in 1984 but no lease deed was executed and a case for the execution of the lease deed was filed in 1990 obviously there was an application for rejection of this case for right. the, of the filing of this case because of because of the bar of limitation the original side of the calcutta high court held as such the division bench of the calcutta high court held as such as well because it was felt that this was a nucleus right of the whole case that execution of lease deed was what was being sought and that could not be sought anymore because of limitation yeah because of the bar of limitation but the supreme court held something else supreme court held and i'm quoting here when the averments in the plaint are considered in the background of the principles set out in the sopan sukhdev case the case right. which sets out the notion that you have to read yeah. the whole plaint meaningfully the inevitable conclusion is that the division bench was not right in holding that order 7 rule 11 cpc was applicable to the facts of the case diverse claims were made to the division bench and the division bench was wrong in proceeding with the assumption that only the non execution of lease deed was the basic issue right even if it is accepted that the other claims were relatable to it they had independent existence whether the collection of amounts by the respondent was for a period beyond 51 years need evidence to be adduced correct yeah so it is not a case where the suit from the statement in the and this is the most important line i think it is not a case where the suit from statement in the plaint can be said to be barred by law the statement in plaint without addition or subtraction must show that it is barred by any law to attract application of order 7 rule 11 this is not so in the present yes and i think that is where the supreme court even more clearly sets out the fact that sometimes you'll have to go beyond the plaint and look at the evidence to decide that among the averments that have been put forth in the plaint right if one of those averments is such that without an examination of fact you cannot decide if limitation applies or not you cannot decide if it is an issue at, at all or not then you cannot ex facie bar it on limitation right right you'll have to go into that right so which means that there's a slight nuance here hmm 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 exactly essentially what we're trying to say is that when and this is always the case limitation as we all know the standard principle that we're taught in law school is that limitation is a mixed question of law and fact that's always been the case hmm. right and when limitation is a mixed question of law and fact there is no way on earth you can make an exercise determination under order 7.11 and say that hey the bar of limitation is attracted and therefore your plaint is rejected by this court so in most cases it's always the case that a person who's responding to an order 7 rule 11 application will raise the argument that since limitation is a mixed question of law and fact this needs to be framed as a triable issue and you cannot at the very threshold reject my plaint under order 7 rule 11 Now, in this regard, we've heard of a few cases wherein the Supreme Court has held that no, you need to go back to trial, frame this as an issue, and your rejection under O seven R eleven is invalid. Mm-hmm. Let's look at a case where the Supreme Court held otherwise, mm-hmm. right? And this is essentially the case of um, 
RS Singh versus R, uh, uh, RP Singh. And this is also a very recent case. The decision in this case was rendered in March 19, 2019, right? So just a few months back. And over here, what had happened was there was a similar uh, application made under Order 7, Rule 11 by the defendant, the original defendant. And that application had been rejected at two stages, the trial court and the high court. And now the original defendant and therefore the appellant in the present uh, matter was before the Supreme Court, right? And he had sought that the application be upheld and that the plaint be rejected. Of course, the, the respondent in the present matter, which is the original plaintiff, had raised the claim that limitation is a mixed question of law and fact, which can only be decided after the parties have led the evidence, right? And what the Supreme Court here said, that if you were to consider the averments, the averments made in the plaint and you find that the suit is clearly barred by the law of limitation, then you don't need to go into leading of evidence. You can, at the very threshold, reject using your power under Order 7, Rule 11 which is a clear affirmation of the principle. Otherwise, the very existence of Rule 11D, which is the question of limitation, is rendered moot. If limitation is always a question, is a mixed question of law and fact, then you cannot make a threshold determination. So the Supreme Court has reaffirmed the principle that if upon a prima facie reading of the plaint, it's clear that limitation is attracted, then you can reject the plaint. Right? So that is the principle that we're trying to lay down here. Now let's go back and talk a little bit about the two competing principles. Right, that moving out of the four corners of the plaint and also then saying that you need to read the plaint meaningfully in order to understand whether a cause of action is revealed, whether the bar of limitation is there or not. Now, according to you, Harsh, what is the meaning of this concept, restricting yourself within the four corners of the plaint? I think the whole controversy arises when, when we look at the nebulous meaning of the word meaningful reading. Correct. And that, and that I think is humorous. <laughs> But um, but yeah, what does it mean to meaningfully read something? And I think the Supreme Court has explained that in T. Arvindadam right. and in uh, the Sokan Sukhdev case. Yeah, that you know you don't you're not reading it formally. You you you're really going into what it's actually saying. You're trying to look at the meat of the matter, and you're trying to decide if you know if whether it's being barred by limitation or whether it right. really is or is not disclosing a cause of action. Yeah, and you you're trying to you know you know basically get get to the bottom of things you know by trying to by trying to really sift through any kind of clever drafting Correct. or any kind of bad drafting right whatever the case may be right and again so to meaningfully read something you have to recognize that it it cannot at times possibly tell you everything Right, the plaint itself cannot always tell, tell you, you everything. everything. Yeah. So, what I would want to say is that the presumption of the Order 7, Rule 11, D bar, yeah. for, as far as limitation is concerned, the presumption of the assumption that the law has yeah. in, its, in its barest general statement right. is that the plaint will be able to tell me everything that I need to know. Correct. Correct. But in the situation where the plaint cannot tell me everything that yeah. I need to know, yeah then it would offend the very notion of meaningfully reading something to try and decide an issue where I'm supposed to know everything Yeah, by restricting myself to reading something that cannot tell me everything. Absolutely. And in this regard, I think if we can just go back to the R.S. Singh versus R.P. Singh case, the March 2019 decision of the Supreme Court, we might be able to read para 7.1. And here, something very interesting happened, right? 
So let me just quote what the court was saying. And the court by now had decided that they are rejecting the plaint and they are uh, allowing the application under Order 7. And the court now says, at this stage, it is required to be noted that as such, the plaintiff has never prayed for any declaration to set aside the gift deed. And the gift deed is the fulcrum of the limitation question, by the way. Now, going back to what the court is saying, we are of the opinion that such a prayer is not asked cleverly in the plaint. If such a prayer would have been asked in that case, the suit would have been said to be clearly barred by limitation considering Article 59 of the Limitation Act, which means that the plaintiffs realize that, hold on, if I ask for this prayer, then the court will be able to detect, based on a reading of the plaint, that my plaint is in fact barred by the law of limitation. And recognizing the principle that you cannot go beyond the four corners of the plaint, if I omit this from my plaint, then the court cannot decide on the question of limitation simply looking at my plaint. But the Supreme Court has turned this principle on its head. And it has in fact said, and I think even though the court has not said this, what the conclusion, what the reconciliation of these two seemingly competing principles, it is that you can look at what is included in the plaint or a lack thereof. Right? So the inclusion of something in a plaint and the exclusion of that very thing in the plaint can be said to be within the four corners of the plaint, right? And you don't need to go into the averments made by the defendant or the contentions raised by the defendant. The very fact, the very existence or the absence of something in the body of the plaint is indicative and is helpful to decide in Order 7, Rule 11 application. And, and this is where what I'd say is that... Um what you described as a clever strategy, what the Supreme Court described as a clever strategy on the part of the part, the, yeah, the plaintiffs, on the part of the plaintiffs in, 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 in the Supreme Court case that you were just discussing. It's, com I wouldn't say similar, but comparable to what the argument that was, that was sought to be peddled by Mr. Obrajit Mitro, senior advocate, who was for Merlin in, in, in the Calcutta the High Court, in the Calcutta High Court division, in front of the Calcutta High Court division bench. What he was basically trying to say was that you know, you are supposed to look at this amendment of the plaint. You right. have to go into the amendment of this plaint. Yeah. Decide if there is a development agreement or not. Right. And only then decide if limitation applies. Correct. So it was, a, it was an attempt. There, there was an omission of a material fact or a material relief. Yeah. Here, there was, there was an attempt to include an immaterial fact. Right. Or an untrue claim. Right. And right. thereby right, right. Absolutely. And I think this is very interesting, right? Hmm. So the thing is, we always know that in life, things can go against you or for you. And the same thing can do that, right? And this is what is happening here. In the High Court case, uh, the Calcutta High Court case, when uh, Senior Counsel Abhijit Mitro is raising this contention of the development agreement, that is helping him move away and save his clients from the question of limitation. But at the same time, it constitutes a fresh cause of action, which is a ground for rejecting the amendment to the plaint, right? So the same thing is hurting him and helping him. And basically the question is, can the plaintiff elect to use an argument in his own favor and then say that the negative ramifications of that argument shouldn't hit me? Which is the same thing that's happening over here. If in the, in the March 2019 Supreme Court case, the plaintiffs, if they had prayed, if they had made that prayer under the gift deed, it would have meant an additional prayer and an additional possible relief. But if they had made that prayer, then that would have essentially meant that their plaint is liable to be rejected under the law of limitation. So mm -hmm. the same argument can go against you and for you.
And that's a very interesting aspect of civil procedure again. And I think I'd put para- paragraph 8 of Justice Shamatdar and Justice Hattacharya's judgment, which I think really tells you how you cannot have an argument uh, argument go for you and then not go against you. Right. Which is that uh, paragraph 7 and 8, actually. And it's a bit of a wordy quote, but I, but I think it's worth it. Yeah. So, and, and again, we, we come back to Natarajan. The ratio of Natarajan which follows the general principles laid down in Sopan and also follows Popat and Kotecha, implies that the rejection of a plaint on the ground of limitation under the provisions of Order 7, Rule 11 may require a determination of fact, requiring evidence to be abduced, only in certain cases, so as to allow the court to determine when the limitation period begins. This much has been clear from whatever we've been discussing till now. In the instant case, however, the original plaint never asserted the existence of the development agreement or the possession of certain go-downs in the said premises. Rather, an entirely new case was sought to be made out in the amendment application. As such, the learned single judge was not required to conduct a fact-finding exercise in order to decide on the question of limitation. Hmm. Going into such a fact-finding inquiry in order to arrive at such a conclusion would offend the very basic principles governing the scope of Order 7 Rule 11A of the Code of Civil Procedure 1908. It would mean allowing the plaintiff to introduce a new case by way of an amendment to the plaint that would change the very cause of action of the suit from an alleged violation of an memorandum of understanding as rightly held by the learned single judge into the alleged violation of a purported development agreement made pursuant to that said MOU. In other words, our present case is quite distinguishable from Natarajan and also Popat and Kotecha. That case, or rather those cases, dealt with a fact situation where the court had to determine whether the plaintiff was actually in possession or not, since the factum of such possession was being disputed by the defendant. The situation here is completely different. Different. Acceptance of the amended plaint and not rejecting the original plaint on the ground of limitation is to allow a suit to metamorphose into a new cause of action, right. which clearly circumvents the laws of limitation that bars a suit and requires rejection of the plaint. So I think right. we're sort of really con- we really have an outer limit placed here yeah. to you know traversing outside the so-called four corners of the plaint, right. because the plaint doesn't give you enough to be yeah. able to decide the limitation question. Right here we're saying that. You will not, you cannot possibly say that the plaint does not give you enough to decide the limitation question when the facts which supposedly require you to traverse outside the plaint are not within the plaint but are are being brought in by a a purported amendment to that plaint which seeks to change the cause of action itself. Right. And now... Right, the question is one of equity and justice here. Hmm. Now, let's say that the amendment to the plaint, if it were to be allowed, even though it altered the cause of action, actually revealed a valid cause of action, right? And actually displayed to the court that the plaintiff who has now amended the plaint is a genuinely aggrieved party and is now before the court seeking relief. Now, if you were to follow the principle of equity and justice, and if you were to allow the amendment, you wouldn't really harm the defendant because the defendant now has to defend a valid case against him. But you're really benefiting the plaintiff. Mm -hmm. Right? And you're saying that the plaintiff 
because of whatever bad drafting, error in drafting, erroneous drafting, grave lack of judgment, didn't include it in the original plaint, now has a valid cause of action in the amended plaint. And and uh, with deepest respect, I'd, I'd, I'd give that point short shrift for two reasons. Firstly, there's the, um, if a new cause of action were to be revealed as a consequence of, say, bad drafting or bad advice, then that new cause of action can certainly certainly be pleaded in a new, fresh suit. Correct. Now, one one may argue that, you know, that is a technical point. Right. Instituting a fresh suit is... Right, right, right. Wasting the time new, of the court. Is a new worry in itself. Yeah. And that is where I come to my second connected point, which is that if you're going to go to court in the first place, you better be well prepared. Right. And to say that you ought not to be... ought not ought to face no consequence for not going to the court with not clean hands, but not with the most prepared hands, is inequitable in itself. So I right. think on the balance of equity, I think if there's a new cause of action being introduced in a hand-handed manner, yeah, and 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 I and I think and I can and I and I think it's very unlikely that bad drafting is what is going to lead to this right. sort of situation because bad drafting exactly. is something courts can deal with exactly even before that sort of a problem arises. So even if it's not a de novo cause of action, but an associated one, I think the principle that's laid down by the Supreme Court again and again, that you read the plaint as a whole in order to see where the cause of action lies, also holds, right? Which means that when you're reading the plaint, not only are you reading it to look for a to look for non-disclosure of cause of action in order to be able to reject the plaint, you are also reading it to look for a cause of action in order to be able to uphold the plaint hmm. and to then dismiss the application under Order 7, Rule 11. So the exercise of reading is what is important. And as you said, it's a drastic power. It's not exercised lightly. Right. And and the point we're trying to make here is to to is, is speaking of how the situation is is never usually underlined. We, right. we are underlining constantly, I think, by talking about these things and by talking about this Calcutta High Court case in yeah. particular, that it it really has to be something quite problematic for the court to go okay we're not going to we're not going to go into this right and we're not we're not going to uphold your case yeah so so allow your case sorry so so yeah so i don't i mean the mischief we may be seeking to 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 prevent by by making the equity argument equitable argument that you know we sh- we should take introductions of new causes of action a little more leniently for the purposes of parties who who may be who may have had, who may be badly advised, right? I mean that that mischief in itself doesn't arise in the exactly. sort of scenarios we're exactly. dealing with. Yeah, and the mischief that we seek to prevent by not allowing these tactics, I think, is far greater. Exactly, and the exactly. advantage that accrues is far more than if we were to give in to these, you know, these. Mm-hmm these notions in the air about equity and justice mm-hmm. and then to allow parties which have bad counsel to mm-hmm. amend the plaint and introduce a de novo cause of action. Mm-hmm. And I think we've covered fair ground today. We've discussed and debated a huge amount of principles under civil procedure and we've looked into the question of Order 7, Rule 11 and passed it quite thoroughly. So I think that these idea, this idea of the conflicting principles, one that you look into the four corners of the plaint and not beyond that, and the second that you read the plaint meaningfully, have now been reconciled. So, what we've learned today is exactly how a judge is to traverse a plaint in order to decide an application under Order 7, Rule 11. 
And from what I've read about civil procedure, and I think in Harsh's experience with the Calcutta High Court, such applications are commonplace. They're always filed. Whenever a plaintiff is there, no 7R11 application comes right after it. And, you know, discussing and debating these questions with civil procedure will help all of us in understanding how these applications are to be decided and dispensed with, either approved or rejected. I think the bottom line for me, and, and being a bit naughty, bottom line for me here today would be would be to quote Jolly LLB of all things. Right. Which is to say that, you know, um, as they say, uh, I mean, it's a Hindi quote and I'll translate it, which is, Kanun anda hota judge nahi. The right. law is blind, not the judge. Right. And I think it's, what the cases we've discussed is, is, is a fine example of judges seeing with their eyes. Absolutely. When we need to go beyond the plane and when we don't need to go beyond the plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even though Order 7, Rule 11 in itself may be blind to a lot of things, the judge is not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And these discussions that we've uh, conducted today, I think this is what should go through the minds of judges when deciding such an application. Mm-hmm. And to end, I think um, I'll just read one line from uh, the Aravind Dandam case, which is the Supreme Court case that we've been discussing for all this while, which is that activist judge is the answer to irresponsible lawsuits. And I think on that note, we'd like to conclude this episode. I hope you've learned as much as listening to us as we have by preparing this episode for you. See you again next week. Thank you so much for joining us today.